This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Looking this morning at Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Listen to the word of God. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, as we study it this morning, that your spirit gives us grace to understand it. And we pray, Father, that you would apply it to us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was driving over to the church this morning, had the radio on, was listening to a, uh, the, the preacher at a church in the Atlanta area. And before he read the scriptures... Uh, He said this, and and he he customarily says this, listen for the word of God. Now, if you're not listening carefully to that, we think, good, you know, the Bible's the word of God, that's fine. But did you catch the preposition? There's an awful lot of theology in the prepositions we find in Scripture, but also the prepositions in our theological formulations. Listen for the word of God. What he did not say was listen to the word of God, but listen for the word of God. Now, behind that, there is an understanding of Scripture. The understanding of that of Scripture that that preposition betrays is this. The Bible is a human book. Now, we would agree with that. I would agree with that. The Bible is a human book, but it is more than a human book. God used human flesh and blood authors to write the scriptures. But lying behind that preposition four is this. The Bible is a human book and therefore subject to human errors and failures. However, when the Bible is read, 
corporately, individually. When the Bible is read, God speaks through the Bible. God speaks to you through the Bible. And it's the difference in this. The subjective speaking of God to you through the Bible versus the Bible itself being the Word of God. And so when he says, listen for the Word of God, it's as though it's something you might catch, that God might be speaking to you as the Bible is read. I would say no. God is speaking as the Bible is read. Whether you believe it or not, it is the Word of God. Whether you receive it or reject it, it is the Word of God. Whether this book is even opened or not, it is the objective Word of God. And so, I would say, when I begin to read, listen to, not for, but listen to the Word of God, because it is the Word of God regardless of how it affects you or what response you offer to it. And because it is the Word of God, objectively, regardless of your response to it, regardless of whether you get anything out of it, because it is the Word of God, you are accountable for how you respond to it. As soon as you hear anything from Scripture, you are accountable, you are responsible to God for your response to that Word, to His revelation to you in the words of Scripture. And that's what Jesus is talking about in the passage that is here before us today. That we are accountable for what we do with God's truth. Now, Jesus has been speaking, as we've seen, about John the Baptist and assuring the people of of John's identity, his authority, but also calling into question their response to John, their response to Jesus, always finding some reason to reject. You know, John came, they said, well, he neither eats nor drinks, he lives out in the wilderness like some sort of crazy man. Jesus came and he ate and he drank and they said, well, he's a, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he hangs out with all kinds of wrong people. They always had an excuse why they weren't going to listen to the truth. And now Jesus takes up that very thing. He speaks to this generation back in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? Well, now Jesus gives us an indication of what this generation he's referring to is, is like. Well, what do we learn from this passage? Well, it seems there's a couple of things that Jesus is teaching us here in the two sections that we read. In the first place, judgment comes on those who reject the gospel. Judgment comes on those who reject the gospel, which is another way of saying we are accountable for what we do with God's word. Now, Jesus begins by pronouncing woes. Now, woe isn't a word that we typically use a lot today, but woe is an expression of judgment. And it's kind of an element of pity. You know, I feel sorry for you for what's coming. But it's a pronouncement of God's disfavor, a pronouncement of impending doom, that judgment is coming. And it's an expression of that on, on some cities there in the area in which Jesus had been ministering, area of Galilee. And notice what Jesus says about them. First of all, there's a comparison of, this, of the Galilean cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Look at what he says. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth 
and ashes. Now, for the Jews, especially those living in Chorazin and Bethsaida, that would have been a highly offensive comparison. Tyre and Sidon, as you read about them, they occur in, in the Old Testament, were long-standing enemies of Israel. Uh, they were seaport towns. They were, um, in many ways, quite wicked, uh, as you might expect such a town, a pagan seaport town, to be. Uh, whereas Chorazin and Bethsaida uh, were Jewish. They were part of Galilee. They saw themselves as maybe a, a cut above. And for Jesus to even compare the two would have been offensive. But for him to actually prefer them, to speak favorably of Tyre and Sidon in comparison with Bethsaida and Chorazin would be, would be even more offensive. You, know, you read in the Old Testament, uh, Amos chapter 1, Isaiah 23, that speak of God's judgment on the wickedness of those cities. Were Tyre and Sidon more wicked than Chorazin and Bethsaida? Almost certainly. They were pagan cities, seaport towns. But that's not the point. They were wicked. They probably, in terms of just sheer evil, were more wicked, more filthy towns than Chorazin and Bethsaida. But that's not what Jesus' point is. What's Jesus saying about them? It's not their condition but it's rather response to revelation. And Jesus is saying, you know, if those two cities had seen the kind of miracles, had seen the kind of powerful works, had heard the kind of preaching and teaching that you have heard, they would have repented. Now, some have talked about this as, as an expression of God's knowledge of contingencies. Of course, God knows this world. God decreed this world. But the theologians also would talk about God's uh, contingent knowledge. God not only knows what will be, he knows what could have been. Well, whether this is an expression of that kind of knowledge or not, uh, or if Jesus is simply making the comparison for the sake of making a point, uh, it has to do with one's response to revelation, with one's response to the truth. And that's what he's saying here. If they had seen what you have seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, and ashes. Typical Old Testament expression of repentance. The sackcloth was a coarse garment, uh, usually made of short camel's hair, maybe an undergarment, and it was worn to basically be uncomfortable, to be itchy, you know, to be to be next to the skin, to make you uncomfortable. The ashes would be sprinkled on one's head. It's basically an outward to be an outward expression of inward contrition or repentance. If they had if they had seen what you saw, if they had heard what you've heard, they would have repented. Long ago. But Jesus isn't finished. He makes another comparison. He says, you, Capernaum. Now, what do we know about Capernaum? Capernaum is where Jesus made his home when he began his ministry there in Galilee. Capernaum was kind of his base. It's where he lived. Uh, And certainly they had had opportunity to see the miracles, to hear the teaching and all of these things. And he says, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Ouch. So you like your town to be compared to Sodom and it comes off unfavorably. 
Uh, that's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, so this would have stung. This would have provoked a response. You know, if, if, if the things that you've heard and seen had been done in Sodom, that town would still be there today instead of this smoldering. Well, by this time, of course, it was no longer smoldering. But this heap of ruins, this nothing, this obliterated wasteland, it would still be here. And Sodom was an extremely filthy, wicked, immoral place. And Jesus is speaking to Capernaum, his hometown now, his adopted hometown. And he says, if, if Sodom had seen the things you see, it'd still be here. They would have repented. They wouldn't have experienced God's judgment. Now notice what Jesus says in both cases, verse 22 and then 24. I tell you, it will be more bearable for the, on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Verse 24, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and for you. Again, it's not the level of their wickedness. The point here is the absolute rejection of the magnificent revelation these towns had received. They are accountable for what they had seen and what they had heard, and their judgment will be all the more severe because they rejected the truth, the plain truth, exposed to them, revealed to them, taught to them. And as Jesus says of Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven. You'll be brought down to hell. It'll be more tolerable for those other cities who did not have the revelation that you had than for you who had it and rejected it. Now, there is a most stern warning here for us. For someone who is not a believer, who has heard the gospel growing up, for someone who is not a believer, who has sat under the biblical preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. For someone who is not a believer and has had someone tell them about Christ. They're falling into the very same sins. They're falling into the very same judgment, the very same condemnation as Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, who had light and rejected it. Who had the light and shut it out. Who had the light and refused to receive it. But it also says something to those of us who are Christians. Have you improved the opportunities that God has given you for growth? Have you made the most use that you can of the various opportunities that the Lord has given to us? You know, to whom much is given, much is required. Think of what we have. We have worship on Sundays, morning and evening with the preaching of the word. We have Sunday school. We have Bible studies. And outside of that, we have Bibles galore and whatever translation you want. We have all kinds of good Christian books that are affordable and easily accessible. We have DVDs of some of the best Christian preachers and teachers on the planet, CDs to listen to. We have the money to buy them. We have the freedom to own them. What have you done with such a wealth of opportunity? What have you done with such an abundance of light? Have you grown accordingly? Have you walked with Jesus proportionally to the light you have received and the light that is accessible to you? You see, we have, in a sense, more opportunity, more exposure to the light of God's word than any generation in history. A couple clicks on the Internet, you can hear the best teachers on the planet. I think of what Paul could have done with the Internet. He didn't have it, but we do. God does hold us accountable for the opportunity and the light that he gives us. Certainly as unbelievers come to Christ and yet he may reject him. 
but also to us who are believers for what we do with the opportunity that we have. And that's the point here. And that's the point Jesus is making, that judgment comes on those who reject the gospel in spite of the light that they have. Now, the only sin for which they're judged is not their rejection of the gospel. We're all sinners, whether we hear the gospel or not, and under God's judgment. But to have the light and reject the light, or to have the light and neglect the light, is a dangerous thing. Now, the second point that Jesus makes in the second paragraph there is that salvation comes to those who, by God's grace, trust in Jesus. Verses 25 through 30. And the first thing that Jesus tells us here is, and we, we recognize this, that salvation comes by the revelation of the Father. Verse 25. This is interesting. Jesus, as he's there, is, is praying, praying publicly, praying to his Father. And the people around him and we are able to listen in and hear what he's saying. I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will, or this was your good pleasure, or something like that. It was his his pleasure to do it that way. Now, when Jesus speaks of the wise and understanding, uh, he's speaking to those who of those who are who are bright, who may have a lot of knowledge, and may in many ways be wise and understanding, yet there's a hint of irony there, isn't there? Because these people and all their wisdom and all their understanding don't get it. They don't understand the gospel. They don't get the gospel. They don't believe in Jesus. It's the people of Chorazin, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Capernaum. Many bright, intelligent people, wise and understanding. But the Father's hidden the truth from them and revealed it to little children. Perhaps literally, some little children to be sure. But more importantly, figuratively, those who don't see themselves as wise and understanding and certainly above other people, those who have a certain humility to listen to what Jesus is saying. But really, it doesn't come down to the person. It comes down to the Father. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You have revealed them to little children. So it's not the condition of the person. It's the it's the work of the Father in hiding the truth from some especially those who see themselves as seeing and understanding and wise, and revealing it to others. People like Peter, people like John, and certainly those who would be seen as as, uh, intellectuals of the day, some of those too, those who were wise and wealthy and influential and persuasive in the ways of the world, certainly some of those too. But basically those who are of a more humble spirit. Now there's two things at work here, the condition of the person but also the purpose of God to reveal or to hide. Now, we need to recognize that doesn't occur in a vacuum. No one deserves to have the truth of the gospel revealed to him or to her. When God hides the truth, he is simply confirming them in their already fallen and rebellious condition. But it's also his pleasure to reveal the truth of the gospel to those to whom he will. Well, we go on then. It's not just the revelation of the Father. It is through the agency of the Son. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here it's not the Father, it's the Son. The Son knows the Father. Father knows the Son. And the Son knows the Father, and he lets he chooses whom he will allow other, others whom he will allow to know his Father. And so it's also a, a work of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Certainly the Father can hide or reveal the truth of the gospel, but the Son also chooses 
to whom he will reveal the knowledge of his father. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. You know, Jesus uh, said, no one comes to the father except through me. And we tend to think of that in terms of Jesus' death. And that's true. The only way we can come to the Father, the only way we can be in heaven, is through the death of Jesus, through that sacrifice, that substitute dying the death we deserved under God's judgment. But when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, it's also reflecting a truth Jesus says here. That for someone to be able to believe, to follow Jesus, it's an act of the Son's enabling him to do that. It's an act of the Son's having chosen to reveal the Father to that person. Otherwise, we'd never come. John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father uh, except the Father draws him, Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him, he says in John chapter 6, because we're dead in our sins. We're blind in our sins. And we will not see Christ, and we will not see the gospel and believe in Christ until the Father and until the Son has revealed the Father to us. However... Things take a curious turn here in the end because we also come by the invitation of Jesus, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, having just said that, having just said no one can come unless I reveal the Father to him, or the Father reveals himself to him, he then issues an invitation. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. How can you say come to me when you just said no one can unless you reveal them? Well, here we are kind of in the... uh, in the, the divine sovereignty and human responsibility conundrum, or election and evangelism, right? As if they're somehow pitted against each other. Well, some people believe in election. God chooses whom he will save. Other people believe we just give free offer of the gospel, right? Wrong. We hold both. God is sovereign over whom he, to whom he reveals himself, whom he saves. But there's also this general offer of the gospel to, any, to everyone. To anyone who might come to Jesus, but the two work together because we, as we offer the gospel, as we offer Christ to whoever will believe in him, the Father does the work and Jesus does the work of showing himself to that person as well. And that's why Jesus can say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, heavy laden, burdened in what way? Well, certainly burdened with their own sins. Burdened not only with their own sins, their own cares, but burdened with the the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees who weigh them down with all these laws and extra traditions. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, unlike the Pharisees. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that mean that the way of following Jesus is always trouble-free and care-free? No. But it does mean that our guilt is removed, our sins are forgiven. This is a way of life rather than a way of death. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so we have this offer to anyone who will listen to come to Christ. Now, I would suggest to you that in our thinking about people, we should be in the same place. We recognize it's God's prerogative to save. But it's also our opportunity to offer to anyone who will listen the good news of Jesus, because it's up to the Father whether they come or not, but it's up to us, like Jesus, to say, come to me, all, anyone, everybody who, is, who labors and is heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. question is, have you done that? Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Christ? Have you received his rest? Have you taken his yoke upon you, found that it's easy, found that his burden is light? See, these two passages go together. The first one, we are accountable for what we do with the light that we have. The second one, the Father is sovereign, working out whom he saves, and we have this open offer to come and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what have you done with the truth? You who sit here week after week and hear the word of God from this pulpit, from Sunday school classes, from all kinds of tapes, CDs, DVDs, whatever it might be. You know, James has a warning for us. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There are a lot of people out there listening for the word of God and are sadly deceived. Because they think having heard something... They're okay. But James says, be doers of the word. And the first thing we do, Jesus told us, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. You are accountable, all the more so, for the light you have received. Be doers of the word. Don't just hear it and go home and say, well, that was interesting. Think you're okay with God, deceiving yourselves. Have you followed Christ? Are you following Christ? Are you making use of the light, the opportunities, the advantages that God has given you? Good Bishop J.C. Ryle, 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, put it this way, Let us settle it in our minds that we'll never do to be content with merely hearing and liking the gospel. We must go further than that. We must continually repent. We must be converted. Let it never be said of you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom, than for you. Let's pray. Father, you have given us so many blessings, so many opportunities, so many advantages. We, of all people, should be most sanctified. And yet, Lord, we confess that all too often we've neglected your word. We have neglected opportunities to grow in Christ. We've been indifferent to the condition of our soul. Lord, forgive us. But, Father, put in our hearts a hunger for you, an insatiable desire for your word, that we would make every effort to know it, to know it well, that we might know you, we might know you well. Lord, let us never be satisfied with a little knowledge of Jesus, with a scant knowledge of your word. Father, it is our shame how little we know and how little we grow. Forgive us, but Father, move in our hearts to take advantage of all the light you've given us to grow, to grow like Jesus, to grow to be like him. We ask it in his name. Amen.